Namaste. I'm Reverend Wendy Craig Purcell from the Unity Center in beautiful San Diego, California. Each week we provide spiritual leadership to our growing community, as well as bringing positive change into people's lives. If this message speaks to your heart, please consider helping to support our dedication by making a one-time or recurring donation now. So this is a new series I began last Sunday, and it's a series that I've built around a response to a survey that I put out to you, our congregation. What kind of topics do you most want to hear about? And much to my surprise that one of the things that came very high on the list was Bible stories metaphysically and mystically interpreted. I thought, really? Because I love to do that. I did a lot of that in, in ministerial school and did classes on understanding the Bible from a metaphysical point of view. In fact, some of you may even recall Bible classes I've done. This was a book created by Charles Fillmore, co-founder of Unity, in which he literally took all the different words, names, and places in the Bible and attempted to understand them metaphysically and mystically. It's exhaustive. It really is. But I want to take a much broader look as I share with you some of the wisdom that we can find in the Bible when we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, to be clear, unity does not take the Bible literally. There are many contradictions in the Bible. There are many errors in the Bible. There are many things in the Bible that just don't stand as true, that are not accurate. Unity is not Bible-based, it is principle-based, spiritual principle-based. But having said that, we don't throw out the wisdom that we can glean when we look at some of the, the characters and some of the stories in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, because we can see ourselves in them, we can see some of our own struggles in them. And so today, my message about turning adversity into advantage is pulled from one of my personal favorite stories in the Bible, one of my personal favorite characters in the Bible, and it's the character of Joseph. He was really a quintessential success story. The story of Joseph spans about 12 chapters in the book of Genesis, and it is a story that is filled with lots of drama, lots and lots of drama. I was thinking about some of the you know, mini-series that have been popular for, for us today with all the different drama, and people just really get into it. And as I was revisiting the story of Joseph, I thought, this is like that. There's, there's a, a kidnapping, there's attempted murder, there's infidelity, there's deception, and it goes on and on and on. And so I'm not going to read you 12 chapters, but I, there's so many moving parts that I do want to actually read to you a summary of the story, a summary of the plot, and then I can unpack it and share with you what I think are at least five significant takeaways that we can use or we can remember to apply in our own lives when we're dealing with something that feels against us, that feels big and awful. So here's a summary of the plot of the story of Joseph. So Joseph lives in Cana, and he is the favored of 
12 sons. His father is Jacob and, and Joseph is the favored one. Joseph's brothers envy his favored position in the family and Joseph's uncanny ability to interpret dreams, his ability to interpret dreams. Jacob, the father, when Jacob assigns Joseph to take a flock of sheep to sell, the brothers, the 11 other brothers, see their opportunity to get rid of Joseph forever, because Joseph is kind of full of himself. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph's coat of many colors. He really has a lot of, um, he holds himself in very high regard. And so anyway, the brothers see their opportunity to get rid of him forever, and so they beat him, and they attempt to sell him into, into slavery. They they, the 11 brothers then return to Jacob and tell their father that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. Joseph's found, and because he wasn't killed, he was just beaten. Joseph is found, and he's bought by Potiphar the Pharaoh's superintendent of prisons. Now, Pharaoh is the leader of the land, and Potiphar works for Pharaoh and oversees the prison system. Potiphar's wife is strongly attracted to Joseph. He's a good-looking guy. She's strongly attracted to him, and she tries to seduce him, but it doesn't work, and so she claims rape. And her husband, the superintendent of prisons, Potiphar, is very upset about that, and he kills her, and then he kills himself. Do you see all the drama in this? There's a lot of drama in this, and we're talking a long time ago, so this desire for drama you know, seems to be part of the human experience. So anyway, when Potiphar refuses, or when, when Joseph refuses, it sets into motion uh, Potiphar killing his wife and then killing himself. And so then Joseph is in prison. He's in prison by, by, by Pharaoh. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's butler and baker have also fallen out of favor. And the two of them, so we've got Joseph, who's been sold and kind of betrayed by his brothers, now in prison. And he's in prison with Potiphar, the ruler's, butler and baker. And the butler and baker have some dreams that they can't interpret. And the story goes, remember, Joseph is able to interpret dreams, and he's able to successfully interpret these dreams. And so Joseph then um, is called upon because Pharaoh starts to have some dreams. And Pharaoh doesn't understand what these dreams mean. And the butler, who was in prison with Joseph, are you still following the story? Says, hey, Pharaoh. There's this guy, Joseph, in prison, and he's really good about interpreting dreams. And the dream that Pharaoh has is a dream of seven fat cows followed by seven lean cows. And so Joseph interprets a dream to mean that Egypt, Pharaoh is ruler of Egypt, will enjoy seven years of prosperity followed by seven severe years of famine. And so Joseph suggests to Pharaoh that Pharaoh should set aside grain from the seven prosperous years in preparation for the famine. Pharaoh accepts the suggestion and appoints Joseph to be in charge of the whole thing. So, you know, he's out of prison. Now he's kind of like second in command only to, to Pharaoh. So over the next several years, Joseph's power continues to grow. He prospers and he finds great favor in Pharaoh's house. He marries. 
And then famine strikes. The seven years of prosperity have passed. Now we're entering into seven years of famine. A famine strikes Egypt. But when it strikes Egypt, because Egypt put aside all those resources from the seven good years, Egypt is doing fine. But remember, Joseph has his 11 brothers and his father back in Cana, and Cana's not doing so well. And so when Joseph's family back in Cana decides that, hey, Egypt's got food, we better go to Egypt and get some food. Do you see why I'm trying to condense these 12 chapters? Because each of these pieces is kind of significant, I think, in understanding the story. So when Joseph's family back in Canaan travels to Egypt to buy grain, his brothers fail to recognize him, and Joseph shrewdly uses this to his advantage. So these 11 brothers have to go <clears throat> to Joseph, the very one who threw him in the pit and he wound up being sold into, into slavery. Those 11 brothers go, have to go to Joseph to get some food. How does that land on you? Yeah, me too. Me too. And they don't recognize him. And so he plays with that for a while. And there's a whole other set of drama. And I won't go into all of those pieces. But there's a youngest brother now, the youngest brother being Reuben. Um, he holds Reuben, his youngest brother, who's now the dad's favorite, and orders the other brothers to go bring Jacob and bring Benjamin back. And eventually, when everybody's brought back together, Joseph comes clean. And Joseph says to them, you meant all of this for evil, but God meant all of this for good. Those are, some of, to me, some of the most powerful words in the Old Testament. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I mean, we don't know for sure how many pieces the story happened the way that it's recorded, but we can look at the story nonetheless and I think we can find ourselves, at least I know I can find myself in, in various parts of the story, various feelings of the, the story, the feeling of being betrayed, the feeling of being accused wrongly of something that you did not do, of, of time left alone to think and struggle and try to find your way through, the opportunity try to get even, but to know that that's not the thing to do, and then to eventually step back and see how it's all come into play in a way that has brought about greater good in your life. And so there are a few takeaways that I want to share with you that, that I find to be very inspiring and really important for me to remember, and hopefully they'll help you as well. If you're in a situation where you feel you know, you're dealing with adversity and your spiritual mind, your, your, all that you've learned here in your spiritual journey is telling you, but there's got to be a different way to handle this. And here are some of the pieces I think we can pull from the story of Joseph. The first is this, to trust spirit through everything to trust spirit through everything, to stop wasting time and energy asking why. To trust spirit, trust God, whatever word is right for you. I like the word spirit better. To trust spirit in everything and to stop asking when something really painful or bad happens, to stop asking why. There's Maybe there was an answer on the other end. 
to stop asking why. There's, and let me, let me put some context around that. A lot of times when we're in an adverse situation, the why that the human part of us or our lower, less mature nature asks is the why of self-pity, right? Like, why is this happening to me? And we feel sorry for ourselves. That kind of why, the why of self-pity, is, is not helpful. It keeps us stuck in a very, very negative spiral. There's a different kind of why we can ask ourselves. And it's the why of curiosity. The why that genuinely wants to understand isn't trying to find someone to blame, but is really trying to understand. You see, when something bad has happened to us, it's okay to step back and, and, and try to understand what happened and then do something about it. To move away, we've got to eventually move away from the why of self-pity to the what now, right? Is this making any sense? To move away from the why of self-pity to the, okay, what now? We can ask the why of curiosity, and sometimes we'll get an answer. We'll have an understanding. Oh, this was my part in it. This is what I didn't know how to do better. But now that I've identified it, I can, the next time I'm in this kind of situation, do that piece of it better. So that why that comes from a genuine place of looking and observing and genuinely wanting to understand is healthy. And it will lead us then to the what now. I understand the why. I understand what happened. And now I know a better course of action should I ever be in that situation again. But that's very different than the why of self-pity that looks to blame, or the why of self-pity that is all about victimization. And you know, the interesting thing about victimization, one of many interesting things, but one thing about victimization and the why of self-pity is it likes to pull other people into the story. Let me tell you, let me tell you how awful this was. Let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you, let me tell you. And we listen, and we try to pull in others to not in agreement. Does this make sense? But we never find that we get out of the cycle of the why of self-pity, because that doesn't lead to a healthy answer. But the why of curiosity can. You know, Joseph had plenty of time, plenty of time, to be thinking about the why. And I believe that in order for him to have gotten to that place where he was able to look at his brothers and say, ah, but you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, is he was asking the right kind of why. Second secret or second takeaway to me is to remember that spiritual growth takes time. There is work to be done and it seems like the elapse of time that needs to happen between when we get a teaching in our head and when we're able to live it consistently in our lives. There's a gap between what we know and what we consistently do. I'll never forget the first time we were in London and we're riding the tube 
And all, if you've ever been in London and never ridden the tube, all around, between the platform and the tube, the train, are the words, mind the gap. And to me, that's such a spiritual experience. Mind the gap. Be aware that true spiritual growth is not what we know. It's how we live. It's what we've been able to assimilate, the way we show up. That's what the true spiritual growth is. And it takes time. We have to first learn what it is that we don't know. You can remember, I'm sure, the first time you learned certain spiritual ideas, the first time that you learned about energy flowing where attention goes, that everything is created twice, first in consciousness and then in form, that we live in a reciprocal universe, that the power of our thinking is a very real power. I'm sure you remember when you first started to learn about these ideas. And then there's catching them and living them consistently. Joseph had a lot of time in prison, a lot of time in prison to, to reflect. I'm not suggesting we put ourselves in prison to reflect, but I am suggesting that we remember that it may take a while between the time of learning a principle, learning an idea, and being able to consistently apply it. I don't know who first said it, and I know I'm paraphrasing the idea, but I, it spoke to me the first time I, I heard it. And it was the idea that unity or new thought is not a first place or a first teaching that seekers come into. That it usually takes us, a person, a certain amount of growing and maturing before they're ready to step into the depth of this kind of spiritual teaching and practice. And I think there's a lot of accuracy to that. So sometimes our spiritual growth might feel like two steps forward and one step back, right? Third secret, get over getting even. Don't resist or resent or plan revenge. Get over getting even. Joseph didn't try to get even with his brothers. He had a little bit of fun with them. But he didn't seek revenge. He could have really sought revenge. He helped them to get the very food that they needed. He didn't seek revenge. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes people do things to you or those that you love that are just downright wrong or unfair. And the human part of us may very much want to Seek revenge and takes a certain, may take a certain amount of delight in thinking about, well, I could do this or I could do that. Yeah, some, some of you can relate, right? Right? So be human. Let yourself feel that if that's what comes to mind in the moment. But we don't have to act on it. We can listen to the higher part of ourselves. Getting even, resisting, Planning a way to, for, for revenge is very much like swallowing poison, it's been said, and expecting the other person to suffer the consequences. We are the ones, when we are seeking revenge, when we're trying to get even, we are the ones that are going to pay the price. We may pay the price in our physical well-being. We may make ourselves sick. 
make herself sick. We will certainly not be a mighty attractor to great good in our lives because we're putting out what kind of energy, right? Not an energy that's vibrating at a high level or a loving level or a conscious level, but a very, very low energetic level. It can poison the good relationships that we have because we're so preoccupied with planning some sort of revenge. And so it's a matter of stepping back and stepping into a place of trusting that yours is to take care of what you can take care of inside of you and to let that go. Does that make sense? You're very quiet. I hope it makes sense. I hope it makes sense. A fourth takeaway to me is to never surrender consciousness to circumstances. Those are some simple words to sear in one's memory. Never surrender consciousness to circumstances. Joseph was in prison. From the way the story is laid out, it seems like he made the very best of that circumstance that he possibly could. He used one of his tools, his talents, the interpretation of dreams, and it worked for him. It worked for him. Never surrender your consciousness to the circumstances you find yourself in. Be aware of the circumstances. Don't use metaphysics in a superficial way where you refuse to see the reality of what is that is right before you. See it. Name it. Call it what it is. But don't surrender your inner peace, your consciousness, to what that is. Then you will have really paid the ultimate price. It reminds me of you know, Nelson Mandela, right? He was imprisoned. His body was imprisoned. But his mind wasn't. His mind wasn't. He did not surrender his consciousness to the place he found himself in. I don't know where you may be in your life. I don't know what adversity you might be facing. But don't surrender your mind, your consciousness, to those circumstances. Circumstances are temporary. They will not last forever. Work from the inside out in the only place, or the most important place, not the only place, but the most important place that you can work. From what you tell yourself, from how you choose to see it, and from how you cho choose to show up. We will always ultimately earn the right to be where we are by right of consciousness. You may find yourself in circumstances right now where you look and you say, I don't deserve what's happening around me. Don't let that be the reason to play lower. Continue to play higher, because in playing higher, you will be vibrating at a different level, and you will be attracting at a different level, and you will either find yourself moving into an entirely different and better situation, like Joseph out of prison, second in command only to Pharaoh, or you will find that those that seem to have put you there somehow just 
disappear. They just go away. And the last that I would share with you, and this is so unity, so new thought, find the good in every situation. Find the good in every situation. And there's a big difference between looking for the good and finding the good. If I told you that there was a winning lottery ticket, I don't even know if the lottery still exists or how high it is, but I know sometimes it's gotten really, really high. If I told you that the winning lottery ticket was somewhere in this building, how hard would you look? You would look until what? Until you found it, right? Not just a casual looking of, oh, well, you know, I've checked. You know, the way some, I, I won't even go there. There's a joke in my house with my husband and my son. They never find what's right in front of them in the refrigerator. I don't know if it's a guy thing. Don't send me hate mail, okay? I'm just playing lighthearted with you, right? But the idea being to, to challenge ourselves to look for and to find something good in every situation, in every person, in every person. There may be a person in your life that's really difficult for you right now. You know, a sandpaper to your soul person. Maybe you have someone like that. And I bet that if you don't, there's somebody in the room who has more than one and they'd be willing to share. <laughs> if you choose to, I promise you can find something good to hold on to in your mind about that person. And to the extent that you do, you will find you begin to interact with that person in a more positive way, or at least in a neutral way. To find the good, whatever difficulty you're facing right now, whatever difficult person you might be dealing with right now, your assignment is to find the good. Go home today and sit down for as long as it takes until you can find at least one good thing in or about that situation. I'll leave you with this last thought that I remember. It's a story I remember my minister from many years ago telling. He was counseling a man who was having great difficulty with his boss. And the man couldn't stand the boss. And the man said to my minister, Reverend Robert Stevens, this boss is just terrible. There's nothing good about him. And Bob said to him, your assignment is to go home and find one good thing about him that you can. And I want you to come back next week and tell me what it is. And that man was very disgruntled. There's nothing good about my boss. If you knew him, you would agree with me. There's nothing good about him. So the council league goes comes back the next week, and Bob says, well, did you find, and this is true, did you find something good about your boss? And the man begrudgingly said, yes. He seems to like his dog. <laughs> Bob said, okay, let's start there. <laughs> let's start there. I want you every time you go into the office to think about that about your boss. He seems to like his dog. He seems to like his dog. And as the story went on and the time that Bob spent with him over, I don't know how long it was, the man's attitude about his boss started to shift a little bit. I don't think they ever became best friends, 
but his attitude started to shift. And what do you think happened when his attitude toward his boss started to shift? What do you think happened? The energy between him and his boss started to shift a little bit as well. His boss seemed to start to change a little bit. So there's a lot in this story of looking for and finding the good, of not seeking revenge, of knowing that your, your spiritual growth is a practice. There's a gap between what we know and how we, how we show up, and it's a consistent willingness to try to close that gap, the willingness to... to to see what is ours to see, to ask the why of curiosity, not the why of victimization or the why of blame. And then I think we can say of whatever it is that we are dealing with, we have turned this adverse situation into something beneficial. We can look at it and say, you may have meant it for evil, but spirit, God, the universe, meant it for good. I believe that with all my heart and soul. Namaste.